Um, Matthew is all about the, the Jesus who, um, having all authority, uh, demands all obedience from us uh, in our lives as we follow him, as his gospel goes to all the nations of the world and promises that he will be with us always um, in the midst of that. So this morning, I'm actually going to jump straight into it. So we're in uh, Matthew chapter 19. Uh, if you've got a Bible, then do turn there. If not, words will come up on the screen. And I'm going to be reading from verse 3. <clears throat> Here's what it says. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a, divorce, a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who've been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Why don't we just pray together? Lord Jesus, we um, submit to your word. We thank you for your great story into which we have been called. We, we celebrate the way that you have changed our lives, forgiven our sin, made us right with you, and set us on this adventure of following you. Come now, guide us uh, in these next steps, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I suspect when I read a passage like that, there are a number of reactions um, in a, a room like this. Um, some of you probably thought, well, good luck with that one, JP. Um, I, others might well feel that you have uh, relatively uh, well-developed convictions on, on some of the topics that are addressed in a passage like that, and uh, you're intrigued to see if uh, kind of what I'm about to say agrees or disagrees with that. And there'll be others in the room that um, either have faced or are in the midst of facing divorce right now, and uh, perhaps when something like that is aired and you weren't necessarily expecting it, there can be a, a sudden pang of anxiety that airs as such a, a deep and painful issue, um, it begins to be talked about. And I, I just want to encourage you that Jesus really is your peace, that his word really is the guide to your path, that he sees you, that he knows you, that he cares for you. And um, actually, I don't want to focus primarily um, on divorce uh, this morning. I will touch on it, but I, I want to ask a wider question this morning, of which divorce is an example. And it's this question. How do we engage in conversations about sexual ethics, and I've defined that relatively widely, from Scripture? How do we engage in conversations about sexual ethics from Scripture? Because in the spring, we're going to do a teaching here, a series here uh, on sexuality and gender and relationships. And before we talk about those things in any detail, all of which are God's good idea, by the way, all of which are full of beautiful, godly purpose, we have to lay some foundations. Otherwise, we just end up talking at cross-purposes. 
and it ends up incredibly painful as we talk about such delicate issues. And thankfully, the passage this morning provides us that opportunity. So I, I want to start in verse 3, where the Pharisees come up to Jesus and test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Where we know, quite simply, the prevalence of questions of sexual ethics. So this was a very common debate amongst the rabbis of Jesus' day. But so also for us today, we need only read the news, right? Um, Roe versus Wade on abortion, professional sport and transgenderism, friends sitcom and, and pronouns, uh, protests or the boycott of the World Cup in Qatar, to know that the questions are everywhere, aren't they? And personally, I have found the theory of an English theologian called Carl Truman as, as to why these issues are so prevalent to be absolutely fascinating. I found it so helpful in explaining kind of how society's got to where we've got to. He's written a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he talks about three stages of the evolution of identity, of a person's identity. And he starts in the late, way back in the, the late 18th, early 19th century, which gets known as the Romantic period, where there was a philosophical move away from the idea of truth being found in an external authority. So God, the Bible, family, society, and, and, and instead a move towards a psychoanalyzing of the self that is a looking inward to try and find truth. And that period was characterized by emotion and intuition and the subjective, all of which, of course, are very inward things. Identity was made psychological, what we think of it. But then the second stage is that that identity then got sexualized in the early 20th century, people like Sigmund Freud. And, and very broadly, the idea was that the, the internal desires that we have at their root there is a sexual element, the sexualization of the self, you might call it. And it leaves us with the very commonly held view that our deepest desires are in fact sexual. That who we feel we want to sleep with or any other question of morality has real actionable weight. And then later in the 20th, into the 21st century, through people like uh, Karl Marx, these weighty desires, what we find then is that they turned into rights to do these things. Sex got politicized. And the last 100 years have quite simply just as an observation seen, seen wider legalization of things like divorce and remarriage, of things like abortion, of homosexuality that then became gay marriage. That's not to comment on them, it's just a, a, a historical observation. And then these laws, of course, got accompanied with a social permission in our society, didn't they? Such that, for example, sex outside of marriage is now the cultural norm, to the extent that in our day, it's seen as oppressive to not affirm this inner sexualized sense of self. So identity got made psychological, what we think of it. That got sexualized and that got politicized. That's why the issues are so live amongst us. But just a, a couple of other things, just, just to point out. Um, because of all that, questions of sexual ethics are rarely asked objectively, are they? Neither were they in Jesus' day, in fact. Often get asked, conversations often happen as, as kind of loaded questions. So in Jesus' day, it was then which Jewish rabbis were right 
For us, it's whether we are inclusive and tolerant in the way that our society, quite intolerantly, I might add, tells us we need to be. The second thing is that when the, the Pharisees say to Jesus, is it lawful, what they're really asking is what God thinks. Because for most first century Jews, law and ethics were bound up as one. Now, for us today, the legislation is mostly clear on sexual ethics, but only historically was it undergirding the Christian faith. In fact, today, the law's values of the self and independence and the right to make decisions are actually really quite different. So the passage moves on in verse 4, and it simply says, he answered, and in fact, let's just pause it there, he answered. Jesus begins to answer their question. And it's here that we find the first key crossroads in any discussion of sexual ethics, which is what does Jesus speaking actually mean? Jesus is from from the Greek name Joshua. It simply means the Lord saves. And, And what Matthew's doing here in his gospel is showing that he is God who has come to save and be with his people. He's walked on water, he's multiplied food. He's healed diseases, he's calmed storms. He has all authority and so he demands all obedience as he carries out this loving rescue of his people by taking on himself the punishment that our sins deserve. This is the key question. Is he speaking as such? As Lord, as King, as Savior, Or is it our culture or our felt desires or our agendas that take priority? Because unless we place him in the center of our lives as our number one priority around whom everything else fits, then nothing that he says is going to make sense to us. Not on who we live our lives for, not on the extent of his redeeming work, not on how we use our money or spend our time or or deploy our gifts, let alone what we do with our body or the desires that we feel. In fact, what the Bible says is that every self is broken, sexually, relationally, emotionally, lots of others, that our desires, that our drive, be it sexual or otherwise, though initially given by God as a good thing, and we have to remember that, our desires not drive good things, but they've been stained by sin in a broken world. And actually that won't make any sense either, as neither will the promise that in his gospel, he is restoring his people in every facet of their being, unless we recognize that he's the God who's come to save. So the Bible very helpfully just boils it down to one simple definable question. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Because if not, the whole thing is futile. It's back to as you were morally, we take our leads from Instagram influencers and democracy, we leave it there. But if he did, if Jesus rose from the dead, then he must have been who he said he was, the son of God. And that means he gets to define life, not our damaged self-focused desires, not our own view of morality, not even the accepted cultural norms. Hearing the Christian ethic is part of counting the cost of following Jesus. But the key question 
is the resurrection. Nothing that he says will fully make sense if we don't believe who he is. How does Jesus answer this question? How does he construct his answer? Well, he appeals to scripture. So we'll pick up verse four again, through to verse six. It says, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. He's quoting from Genesis chapter two here. And it's here that we find the next foundation block which is to say that the Bible is the revealed word of God, that it is inspired by God and infallible, that it is the supreme authority in all matters of belief and behavior, that it is unchanged and without error. And all of our prophecies, all of our feelings on how we should act, all of our quest to honor Jesus are all submitted to this book. And that is to say that though each book within it, within the Bible, was written in a, in a specific time, in a specific place, in a specific culture, that properly translated and interpreted, its truths are eternal. They transcend culture. It's not merely a social commentary on the civilization of the time, our enlightened understanding having progressed on from it. I find it really interesting that Jesus doesn't treat the Pharisees' question about divorce just head on here because the undergirding values are just so different. It would be like if I asked an American whether you need to wear a helmet when you are playing football, right? I know what I mean by that. I know I mean soccer, 11 v 11, the beautiful game. Yeah, headers and all, like helmets, bit of a weird idea. But they are meaning, and I don't know how many people are on an American football team. Can someone help me out? 11, 11 at a time. And they run rounds in ways that I've even had people try to explain it to me, and I, I just can't get it. I've tried really hard. They're running all around the pitch in all manner of... Some of them don't even go at the ball. They seem to just go at each other. I don't, I don't get what's going on. But obviously, you need a helmet. If there's someone coming full pelt at you, obviously, you need a helmet. We just mean different things by football. And it's what Jesus is doing here. Like there's different undergirding values. And so what Jesus does is that he locates this question in the one big rescue story of the Bible, which is bookended at the start by Genesis chapters 1 to 3 and at the end by Revelation 21 and 22, sections that contain the story's main elements. You find them defined in Genesis and you find that they've been fulfilled in Revelation. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is locating marriage, divorce obviously being a question of the dissolution of marriage, within God's original beautiful design as the grand story begins. And he'll touch on other points in the story along the way. But what he's doing here is using a commonly accepted tactic amongst rabbis, whereby essentially they went on the principle, the more original, the better which is to say, the further back in the story you go, the more weighty your point. Because God sets the whole redemptive story up in the beginning, he executes it in the narrative, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ being the center point as he takes our sin and he takes our shame and he carries them far away and he, and he is raised to life to show he's defeated it all, restores our relationship with God and creates a new people. 
and he wraps it all up at the end in Revelation. I wonder if you ever noticed that when we do theme preaching here at Grace Church. Always just go right back to Genesis 1 to 3. We did a series about a year ago, wasn't it, called We Are the Church. What's the deal with the church? What's the grand plan of God? It looked at different ways the church is described. Lots of messages. Well, let's start in Genesis 1 to 3. God's plan for our well-being, just what was that, kind of nine months ago or so. What's God's plan for our emotional and relational and spiritual, etc. well-being? Well, let's go back to Genesis 1 to 3 and have a look. What does all this have to do with sexual ethics then? Well, in Genesis 1 to 3, we see what it means to be human. We see what male and female are. We see what marriage is and why it's a holy thing. We see why sex is God's good and purposeful gift. We see a beautiful pattern of life where we are made for connection in ways that point ultimately to our relationship with our creator. And then we see the ways that all of these things get broken and confused as humanity turns its back on God and looks to itself. Sounds familiar. It's what Carl Truman, the guy I quoted earlier, says happened once again in the last couple of centuries or so. But the good news is that the gospel redeems us from our brokenness, that humanity and gender and marriage all get restored. And then Revelation 21 and 22 completes the story with the ultimate marriage of God and his people together forever. There's a story going on, guys. It's God's story into which we are brought we're not the central characters, by the way. We live for him. We reflect him. Marriage is given as a picture of our relationship with him. People make decisions that sometimes are very different to their desires to honor and glorify him. It is all about him. It can be very easy in questions of sexual ethics, can't it, to just take verses out of context construct the outcome we want that seems societally the easiest and claim divine authority for it. But Jesus locates this question in God's grand story. And that isn't always easy to do. It can require some thought rather than just kind of popcorn verse quoting from the Bible. So we shouldn't be surprised then when further questions come from the answers we give along the theme of why why is the, this doesn't make sense to me yet question, isn't it? And that's what happens here. Have a look in, in verse seven. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Again, Jesus says we struggle with these things because we're all broken. Hardness of heart is the expression he uses. And again, it only makes sense if we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he can both diagnose and treat the human condition in the gospel such that we live for him now, as we were always meant to do, and no longer for ourselves. I cannot stress enough that if you believe that Jesus is your sufficiency, then your question, recognizing the myriad of desires that we feel, is not who am I really, or how can I action what I feel inside? The question as a loved and cherished child of God is purely and simply, what has God revealed in his word? 
about my identity, about what to do with my desires, about what sex is, about what my gender, my humanity, what marriage is for. Because it's there I will find life, because it's there I find God's great redemptive story into which I've been brought, into which you've been brought, if you believe in Jesus. And divorce and remarriage are one such example of that, aren't they? A live and painful question for every single person who has experienced divorce, everyone who's struggling with marriage. It's interesting to note how the Pharisees fail to ask how a struggling marriage can be saved or how an abused partner can be safe because that's not their debate. That doesn't seem to be on their radar. And once again, Jesus' answer sounds strange if we don't recognize that he's the one who created marriage. He's the one who knows every human heart and that he is all we need. He goes to scripture, as we've been seeing. He starts in Genesis 1 to 3, as we've been seeing. He affirms the sanctity of marriage, that it's sacred because he made it to reflect our relationship with him. He notes how men and women were made to be together in community. And that doesn't have to be marriage, by the way. All men need female influences in their life and vice versa. That is why church family is so precious. And then Jesus notes the marriage process, doesn't he? he itself a, a picture of the one who would leave his father and be united to his bride, being joined together with her forever. It's Christ and the church. It's where the story ends, Revelation 21, 22. So marriage is a godly union, he's saying. It's not a matter of convenience. It's not about the nice wedding. It's not even about the tax advantages. You know, though they exist, it's not, it's not about that. The starting place on the question of divorce, Jesus says, is always the preciousness of marriage, to fight with every fiber of our being to uphold and save a troubled marriage. We know that, sadly, that doesn't always happen, does it? Because we're all broken because our hearts can sometimes become hard. It's why we need the one who gives us a new heart. But again, that won't make sense if we don't believe who Jesus is, and instead we live for ourselves, our desires, our satisfaction. And neither will it make sense when he says in verse nine that there are some instances in which remarriage post-divorce does not seem to be biblically permissible. There are some grounds listed, it's, it's worth saying, like adultery is clear here, it doesn't have to mean uh, divorce in every occasion. There have been instances where um, the, uh, the perpetrator has been repentant, there's been forgiveness, and the marriage has been restored. But understandably, that, that doesn't happen every time. That is a, a biblically permissive gra uh, grounds for divorce and remarriage. Death, abandonment, both of those get picked up elsewhere in Scripture. I think you could make the case from Scripture for abuse being grounds for, for divorce and remarriage. There could be others. It all depends on what verse 9 means, where Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And that phrase, sexual immorality, it's the Greek word porneia, all turns on what that does and, and doesn't mean. It's a different Greek word to the word for adultery. And if you're asking that question, I'd be very happy to chat to you, as would any of the leaders in this church, about, about, about these things as, as you explore how you can best honor the word of God. So we go on to see verse 10, where the, Bible, uh, the disciples say to him, 
If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Which is to say that it's okay if um, this or biblical perspective on any other issue leaves you with questions as a Christian, having decided to live for Jesus. It's okay if some of this seems daunting. It's okay if it seems a bit complex, not just to our biblically illiterate society, but to us who, who love the Lord. There are plenty of times in life where it is hard to follow Jesus. To deny ourselves and take up our cross is how he defined following him. To say no to some things that we feel because we're living contrary to the values of our society. Because our sexual desires are not the deepest part of us. And because we are not our own God. In fact, it is a regular part of the Christian walk for all of us to resist sexual temptations that we feel for the sake of a greater story. Like, guys, we've got to get real here. Like, we can feel all sorts of things, whoever we are, whatever our life circumstances. Sometimes we can feel them very, very deeply. And if we all acted on each one of those, it would be complete and utter chaos. It'd be hard. Jesus says to them, not everyone can receive this thing but only those to whom it is given. It's why some people turn away. It's why some people turn away from the faith or uh, godly or holy living. But I want to finish with verse 12. And Jesus says, there are eunuchs who've been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who've been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. A eunuch, by the way, isn't just someone who's had their testes chopped off. It's also the word that the, the Bible uses for someone who chose to be um, celibate, if you like. They didn't really have uh, another word um, uh, for that time. Which is to note that all of these questions that we have been talking about today involve real people with real lives and genuine, allowable questions. The desire to marry. Fear of what pregnancy means. Dysphoria between the gender a person feels they are and their biological sex. Same-sex attraction. Concern for mistreated minorities. As people articulate these questions, they often also articulate stories of pain and disappointments and brokenness and feeling overlooked. Often experiences of being dismissed by the church the moment these questions are aired. Jesus does not dismiss our questions, but responds with grace and kindness and this better gospel story. And that's how we must be. These conversations need time. They need relationship. They need a gentle tone rather than just biblical point scoring. You may agree or disagree with all manner of things that I've said today, but my encouragement as we finish would be to search the scriptures, to be convinced by them. The word of God is a higher, truer authority than my exposition of it, than culture's so-called progressive morality, than anything that we feel. Searching the Bible is part of our journey in following Jesus, as is denying ourselves for the sake of its greatest story. Because in doing so, we point to him, the only one who can truly satisfy 
and in whom, as Paul borrowed from a philosopher of old, we live and move and have our being. Shall we stand together and let's have the, the band come up. We'll sing to finish. I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word because it reveals you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally loving one another. And out of the overflow of that love, we were created and we also are redeemed. We thank you for the way, Jesus, that you have rescued us, not just from the things that we realized we got wrong where we went against your will, but from every part of our being that is different from your original design, every aspect of brokenness, every way our world has gone away from what you said was best. We recognize that in the gospel, you are restoring us in our entirety, that you are our sufficiency for everything, every feeling that we have, every painful memory and circumstance that we carry. Jesus, we cling to you in these times and we ask for your spirit's guidance for us to honor the truth of this beautiful story into which we've been brought. We say, Jesus, it's all about you, that we live for you. That's how you made us. That's how you wired us. That's even what you saved us for. And so God, would you give us courage to do that? It's hard to do that, standing where, where our culture is, our society is at the moment, to stand for you, Lord that we are not masters of our own destiny, that we don't define who we are from what we feel internally, but what you, who you say we are stands a greater, louder, and truer truth. We stand on that today, that we are loved, cherished, and blood-bought children of the Most High God, that we've got this wonderful gospel redemptive story taking place in our lives, and that you will see it through to, the, to completion. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.